ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the next episode of my Safe Bet Show. And it gives me a great pleasure to welcome the today's guest, Mr. Brian Hatch. Brian, welcome to the show. Great to have you. Thank you, Martin. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. We will be, if you pardon the pun, talking about the life of Brian today. For those of you who don't happen to know, Brian, he's the author and the host of All In, the Addicted Gamblers podcast. And I would suggest that actually Brian's gambling may be a good place to start. So Brian's very kindly shared with me that he, that you started gambling back in 2000 and actually that particular moment in time largely not saying that it would have necessarily turned your life upside down, that's for you to answer, but it has ended up determining your life story. So if I may ask, what attracted you to gambling in the first place and what was your own lived experience like while you were gambling? I um, was a freshman in college in the year 2000 and some friends, there was a tribal casino that you could go to at 18. And some friends said, hey, let's go play some blackjack. I had never been to a casino, but I was very excited to go. So I met them there and we all sat around the table, played blackjack. And I won. The very first time I went out, you know, I hit a blackjack and I made more money that night than I would have going to work that day. So uh, I was hooked right away. And the next thing I know, I was driving two and a half hours one way to go to that casino instead of going to the classes that I should have been going to. And eventually, um, three months in, I knew I was addicted because I called the helpline. But I called the helpline under the guise of, I'm writing a paper about gambling harm. Could you uh, send me some information? But the info was for me, and uh, they sent me the 20 questions that GA asks, and I answered yes to, I don't know, 15, 16 of them. And so I knew right away that I, I had an addiction to gambling, but I didn't want to stop. I thought I could win my way out of it, so I continued to gamble, and then I was uh, kicked out of college for not going to class. Well, thanks for sharing that story. And was that first when the determinant, the trigger for your gambling addiction? So we will come on to it. You're a much bigger expert, much, much bigger expert than I am when it comes to dealing with gambling addicts and recovered gambling addicts. But typically, that's what a lot of these folks would say. You know, I won or I won big. And then I got the impression that I could be winning all the time. And that really, really hooked me in. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, I, I won. And so I, I had that exact thought of why am I going to work? I could just gamble and get this money every day. What, what am I doing wasting my time at work? Um, so yeah, de winning definitely brought me back. Winning brings a lot of people back. I hear so many stories where the first time someone gambled, they won. And so then they're convinced that they can win again. And if I win on a particular machine or at a particular game, I would be convinced that I could win again at that. So I would continually go back and go back and put more and more money in. That's also what may not be that typical. And if I may put it that way, is the fact that you seem to have been very con conscious about what was happening to you at that time. And you picked up that phone and filled out that questionnaire three months, you said into your gambling, whereas other folks even take years to come to the realization that they've got a problem 
and then take the road that, as I said, you you took very early on. You did your first GAO Gamblers Anonymous meeting in 2007 and then another one in 2009. So what did that feel like? Did you come across many kindred spirits there or was it just folks from all walks of life whose only common touch point would be gambling addiction, but otherwise they would be wildly different? Gamblers Anonymous is a great organization. And if you can get to a meeting, I think it's well worth it. The first meeting I went to, there were three other people. All of them were about 20 to 25 years older than me. And so I was uncomfortable as a 24-year-old kid. It was in a cold church basement. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't welcoming. And I had a lot of anxiety. And so I um, went to the first meeting, but I did not go back to the second meeting, the third, the fourth. Uh, it took me another year and a half to go to my second meeting. And when I went to that meeting, that's the one that made a difference for me. I walked in. It was a big group of people, more from all walks of life. And I connected with a lot of good people in that room. And that room, you know, saved me for about two and a half years. I didn't gamble and things were good. Money comes back when you don't gamble. But I got complacent in my recovery and decided that I was tired one night and I didn't go to the meeting. And then that lasted another few weeks where I was like, eh, I don't need to go. And then I decided I could do it on my own. And that lasted about six months before I was back gambling again. Us folks on the outside, we may be or may not be, you tell me, please. We may be getting a distorted idea as to how these meetings work, determined by what we would have seen on the film screens. So is that the reality? <laughs> Just a bunch of people? some extent regardless of the of, of the size of the group sitting together and talking through their gambling addiction their feelings i suppose and we've already touched up on it the, the boy the context and the triggers that would have originally led to them gambling yeah i mean it pretty much is what you see on tv people are in a room uh everybody goes around and everybody gets five minutes to share and if you don't want to talk you don't have to you can just listen to other people I think what people will go into GA sometimes and they'll compare stories and you don't want to compare stories because, you know, $10,000 to one person is not the same to another person. And so you never want to compare yourself. If you've experienced harm, Gamblers Anonymous is a great room to go into. In all honesty, though, there are some issues with it that, you know, there's an older population. So really young people are intimidated to go in, especially with technology now that you can do meetings online. I think fewer young people are going to meetings. Somebody may be able to afford spending a lot of money on his or her gambling without necessarily incurring a gambling problem, whereas I suppose most of the others would not be in that largely privileged position. So that's a long-winded way of asking you for your stance on affordability in this field. Even if you put the affordability check at $5,000, how many people can gamble $5,000 in an evening? And so that would be there just to make sure that there's no harm after that amount of money. You know, if you cut them off at a certain point, they're not going to lose that extra money that they could lose. I think affordability checks are a good idea because I don't think people can control themselves when it comes to this. Once you're addicted, you're addicted and you will go through credit cards, payday loans, regular loans, pawning items just to get that money to gamble. You won't pay your bills so you can use that money to gamble. And so I think having some sort of affordability check 
at the door or when you go to get more money at the casino is a good idea. I can't believe it would be that complicated considering the most casinos do a credit check anyways if somebody wants credit at the casino. Yeah, and I would agree with that indeed. On to your podcast, so the All In, the Addicted Gamblers podcast. In your own words, the podcast creates a conversation around gambling harm and its effects on individuals or individual himself and herself, their loved ones, as well as the communities and the society at large. So just to demonstrate of the bad that I'm a total amateur at doing this podcast, Brian has produced a very impressive, very, very impressive number of 332 episodes. He very kindly invited me to one of the episodes and uh, we had a great chat. So today I'm delighted that I can return the favor. But if I may ask, what was the original inspiration behind the podcast? Was it just your own experience? Of course, I can imagine that was a very, very important trigger that still carried a lot of momentum. Or, or did you go beyond? Did you take advantage of the meetings that you would have had as part of the Gamblers Anonymous sessions, of course, without putting anybody on spot. I started the podcast about six months after I stopped gambling, and I stopped gambling because it drove me to bankruptcy. I actually had to file bankruptcy due to the gambling. And for six months, I didn't know how I was going to deal with the gambling. Um, I sort of stayed inside, away from people. I didn't want to get in my car. I was living in California at the time, and I was driving to Las Vegas to gamble. And so I needed to not do that. So I stayed inside for six months. I listened to a lot of podcasts and I thought, well, why not do a podcast? So I phoned up my friend who was the friend who actually told me that I had a problem for the first time. And I said, would you talk to me about my gambling, you know, every week for about an hour and we'll put it up as a podcast because I needed therapy. And so this was as close as I could get to therapy because I didn't have the money to go to therapy. And so we did that and we put it up as a podcast and, you know, we went through my story and eventually my story ran out. And then I had to look for other people who were sharing their stories. And I found um, a gentleman in the UK who was putting up vlogs on YouTube named Andy Margit. And he very kindly came on and talked about his gambling story. And that led to, you know, some people email in and say, oh, could I be on some people I reach out to via social media, um, but that's how it started. And now it's grown because other people are willing to share their stories. And it's grown into even a bigger conversation than just gamblers who are affected. We've had affected others on, we've had advocates on, we've had people who work at the different councils, we've had clinicians on. Um, and then I'm very happy to say that you were on and so it was nice to have somebody from the industry to have this conversation with. I, I, I would love to have more conversations like that with people who work in the industry, because if we don't talk about it and find a happy medium where people can be safe at gambling, then uh, we're going to lose more people. And that's a sad thought. Thanks again for the opportunity and the gambling world's definitely better for the podcast. So amongst others, you do invite recovered gambling addicts and um, again you know much much closer to them but uh, i can imagine that it does take a lot of courage to share one's life story what is the key 
objective? What is it your guests are trying to achieve, in particular this group of guests, by attending the podcast and sharing their life story or life stories? Is it about helping, warning others? Or I suppose at the same time, it also might be a form of release therapy, as you called it, redemption. Uh, I think both are true. I think people initially want to talk about this because talking helps. Talking helps someone clear their soul of this weighted guilt and shame that's on them. And so to talk about it and put it out there in the open and realize that they're not alone, I think is very helpful to them. Uh, but I get a lot of people who want to share their story because they heard a story that affected them in a positive way and they want to return that favor and put their story out there in case somebody else will hear it. It's the little nuggets of details that are in stories. You know, how did you get to the Gamblers Anonymous meeting? What door do you go in? Where do you park? These are details that people like myself need to know because gambling puts a lot of anxiety on us. And when you're in recovery and you're trying to get better and you're looking for ways to do that, it's very hard to put yourself out there and to acknowledge it publicly. So I, I do think that people will do it because it does feel like a one-on-one -on -one conversation like you and I are having right now. And so it's a little easier than stepping into a GA room where you're facing a lot of people. You're only facing me, and then it goes out to a lot of people. So I think um, mostly people want to help others in this. I, helping others helps ourselves get better. I've never met so many nice people in the recovery community. It's incredible how kind people are in the recovery community. Just want to help somebody because we know the pain of what it's like. So we just want to make sure other people don't go through that. Absolutely. And if perhaps I may share a story, which was yet another eye-opener for me before we move on. Only yesterday, I was in a room with a number of people, including a person who shared with the group that he bet a large amount of money on the Seahawks winning that game. So if you model the scenario, what Pete Carroll should have arguably done and would have really upset me was to ask his team to hand over the ball to Martian Lynch and the Seahawks would have won. So, well, I was cheering, unbeknownst to me, till yesterday. Actually, there was a person who was sat in the stadium, had a huge bet on it, already having been in a large gambling debt, including the fact that he was betting other people's money. So literally his future, everything depended on the Seahawks winning that game. And they, of course, lost the game because arguably Pete Carroll made the wrong call. So that was, as I said, a huge eye opener for me and helped me with my ability, hopefully, to see the two sides of the story. As well as a Patriots fan, you know, I was besides myself running around my room celebrating there was sadly a person that, being a Seahawks fan, so on top of being upset, them having lost the game, he also lost a lot of money and landed in massive trouble. So, what is your take on this regulatory avalanche being somebody, and for a good reason, whose strong view is that additional access points to gambling, such as sports betting, especially with it being available around the clock on the internet on our mobile phones or cell phones could lead to an increase in gambling addiction? I think so. So when I gambled, I had to have gas money to get to the casino. I had to have time to get to the casino. 
with the phone in your pocket, you don't need time and you don't need gas money. You can gamble that gas money. Uh, you can gamble smaller amounts. I used to have a limit. You know, I wouldn't go to the casino with without at least $200 because if anything less, I knew I would lose that quickly and then I'd be lost at the casino with nothing to do. And so now those little bits of money that people are holding on extra so they can buy food, uh, they can gamble very easily on their phone. And I think having that phone there, I know so many people in recovery who literally gambled on the toilet. And that is a, a view that is sad that people feel so compelled to gamble that they're doing it while going to the bathroom. The amount of advertising is unreal. I know people in recovery who are have avoided sports and they love sports, but don't want to watch it because it triggers them. And so they're doing their best to stay away from it, but they're just inundated with ad after ad after ad during wheel of fortune, during jeopardy, during the day on Instagram, on Facebook. And it's just over and over and over again and constantly handing people free money is going to get more people in trouble. You can't keep saying risk-free bets. You can't keep offering matches of $200 because that's going to get people involved who wouldn't normally do that because they think it's free money. Why wouldn't I go for the free money? Some of those people are going to get addicted. And I, I just worry about the amount of accessibility. I'd like to see a reduction in accessibility. I'd like to see it set up, you know, like a bar or a pub where there's a closing time. And for a period of time, there's just no gambling. And that to me would stop a lot of harm. And, you know, if no one could gamble between 2 a.m. and 10 a.m., that's hours where people have to leave the casino. That's hours where people would put down their phone because they wouldn't be allowed to do it. And so they're not going to lose money in that time. And that's the kind of harm reduction I like to see. So I clearly take it that uh, in your view, it's been too much of that. So I suppose in terms of trying to find a solution, and you've started talking about it. What do you think can be done about that? What are the most efficient tools to convey the right messages without, I suppose, critically, if I may bring the business perspective in, sending the customers into the rather welcoming arms of black market operators. Because if I may play a devil's advocate, that would be the counter argument. But I'm sure that not only today on this podcast, but going forward, we'll all be looking for a compromise that would reflect these two extremes for want of better expression. So number one, if you're going to advertise, put the correct helpline number in your ad. I'm in Connecticut and I see more New York numbers than ever on the ads that I see. And that's if I can read the writing at the bottom, which most of the time you cannot. And so if you want to advertise that much, be mindful of the people who need help and put that helpline so it's legible. No one's not going to gamble because you put a helpline in your ad. So make the helpline big enough so people can see it. I actually saw a FanDuel ad yesterday with Gronk in it, and the phone number was nice and big, and it's the biggest I've ever seen it on an ad, and that was fantastic, except I'm in Connecticut, and it was the New York number. So why aren't they targeting these ads? I know they know how to do that, so they can put the correct information to get people help. And you know whose advertising budget is not huge? People who are helping problem gamblers, they don't have a marketing budget to get the word out there. So they depend on that helpline in that ad so that people will call it. And if it's not big enough or if it's not legible, no one's going to call for help. And so I, I, I would want to see that first if there's going to be this amount of advertising to make it so it can be helpful at the same time. 
you don't have to do a responsible gambling commercial, but just say, hey, listen, if you're having a problem, call this helpline and let that be the commercial rather than, and we'll also give you $200 towards your next bet. What kind of role would you expect the health system in this country and I suppose even beyond to play to address the issues that we have just discussed? Well, I think the conversation has to get into the national conversation. I think the federal government needs to pay attention before the health insurance company is going to pay attention. Um, most states will try to go through insurance first to bill for treatment, but if that's not possible, a lot of states cover the treatment through funds set up um, from taxes and whatnot. So I think that insurance isn't as much of an issue because states, some states, not all, will cover the cost of treatment. But I wish insurance companies would hop on and realize that people need treatment for gambling and that they should do that. I, I don't know how we get to them. I'm still trying to get to the federal government to pay attention and fund some sort of research to begin with. You're known as a very vociferous and articulate advocate of not allowing credit cards for gambling purposes. Likes of Massachusetts have gone down that route. So... Would you mind explaining, first of all, the rationale behind it, and then, if you don't mind, either address, and I keep playing devil's advocate on this podcast, hopefully that's providing for some fanciful dynamic, and uh, I hope you're enjoying it, the audience, well, fingers crossed, enjoy it as well. The proponents of the use of credit cards, here comes the other part of the question, finally, could argue, also to your point about affordability checks, that... It could actually help the use of credit cards with painting the full affordability picture. And it actually happens to be, unlike few other, quite a few other countries, credit cards happen to be still the most popular payment method in this country. So if I may summarize that, what's the rationale behind it, your argument against it? And how would you counter the devil's advocate views? I gambled with credit cards. And when you do that, there's an automatic fee when you take money off your credit card. And the credit card is there presumably for emergencies because the credit card is money you don't have. It's not your money. This is debt that you're accumulating by using your credit card to gamble. And so not being able to use your credit card, at least if you gamble away all your cash, you would still have a credit card to be able to buy food and gas and pay your bills. And that's why I wouldn't want to see people use their credit card. I think your point to sending people to the black market, I have to ask a question, and I mean this very respectfully, but what is the difference other than a license between a black market operator and a legalized market operator? To a gambling addict, it doesn't matter. They're going to have a gambling addiction whether they gamble with you or whether they gamble in the black market. And I know plenty of black market operators that will self-exclude people if they ask. So they're doing that. So they're matching the legalized market on that. What is safer about the legalized market? Well, my initial reaction would be that I should hope, but perhaps to your point, I might be wrong, that the legalized market offers a wide and broad variety of responsible gambling tools that hopefully put those folks in a position, a stronger position to, to get help. But now the time has come for Brian to give us a minute of his thoughts and convey his key messages, if you don't mind. 
Uh, first of all, to anybody who needs help, there is help out there. You can get treatment. You can talk to somebody and talking helps. So please do that. Um, to everybody who works in the industry, remember that, you know, this is the face of somebody who had a gambling addiction that cost them 14 years of their life. And it wasn't because I couldn't, well, it, it was because I couldn't just stop. But nobody in that time frame, one person in 14 years who worked at the casino said to me, are you sure you want to do this? One person in 14 years, and we need to do better than that number. We need to realize that the one or 2% that we talk about is of the total population, not of the gambling population. That number is much higher. And there is a good percentage of money that comes from a small percentage of people who are addicted to gambling. And so just remember that these are people and the suicide rate of gambling addiction is higher than any other addiction. And we need to remember that, that gambling is delicate. Money is the life force, the blood force that gets us to be able to live life. Without money, we can't live life. And if you lose all your money in one night, the worry sets in. What am I going to do? How am I going to cover my mortgage payment? How am I going to cover my kids' school payment? What am I going to do? And that worry really takes people to a dark place. And that's the key message is that gambling can get someone to a really dark place. Finally, I will say this. I love gambling and I think people should absolutely be able to do it. I understand that most people can go out and budget $200 a week and do that. And that's fine. And if it works for you, great. I'm not concerned about you at all. I'm there for the people that need help. And there are plenty more that need help that are still in the grasp of gambling. And we have to get them to the help we need because I don't think person to person, I don't think anybody in the industry wants to see somebody harmed. I don't believe that at all. And so I think that we can do better. And I just hope that more operators will engage lived experience so they can learn, well, how did this affect you and why did this affect you? And what could we do better in our establishment to make you safer? Thank you very much for coming onto the show, Brian. It was an absolute pleasure to have you. Indeed, a very, very important conversation. And uh, Brian and I, we have a podcast. We definitely will continue in this spirit and continue our efforts to spread the word about the necessity to have these conversations. So, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this episode of my Safe bet show. My name is Martin Lichka and I shall see you next time. Thank you very much and take good care.